the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blinn producing David King Engineering. Today we'll share a classic interview with Peter Mutabazi, author of Now I Am Known. He has a very interesting story of hope and hardship that's coming up in the second hour of today's program. But first, we'll take a look at some of the day's headlines. Well, the FBI agents arrested a Massachusetts Air National Guardsman, Jack Douglas Texieri, at a home in North uh, Dighton, Massachusetts, on Thursday in connection with a trove of classified documents that were leaked online in recent months. Attorney General Merrick Garland said that the 21-year-old is being investigated for the alleged unauthorized removal, retention, and transmission of classified national defense information. Well, a large police presence could be seen at the home of the uh, uh, alleged um, leaker, which was about 35 miles south of Boston. He worked on a military intelligence systems on a full-time basis, had his security clearance and access to classified government systems revoked, according to an internal government document. Uh, he joined the Air National Guard in September of 2019, was most recently stationed at Otis Air National Guard Base as a member of the 102nd Intelligence Wing. He was promoted to Airman First Class last July. The National Guard said in a statement it is aware of the alleged role the Massachusetts Air National Guardsmen may have played in the recent leak of highly classified documents from the Pentagon. The National Guard takes this issue very seriously and will support investigators. The statement went on to say the national security of our foremost is our foremost priority and any attempt to undermine or compromise our values and degrade trust among our members, the public, allies and partners is of grave concern. Pentagon Press Secretary Brigadier General Pat Ryder called the leaks a deliberate criminal act, saying that distribution lists of classified information are being reviewed. We entrusted our members with a lot of responsibility at the very early age, Ryder said at a press conference uh, earlier in the day. You've received training. You will receive an understanding of the rules and requirements that come along with those responsibilities. And you're expected to abide by those rules, regulations and responsibilities. It's called military discipline. And in certain cases, especially when it comes to sensitive information, it also is about the law. The New York Times originally identified Uh, The alleged leaker as the suspected leaker on Wednesday evening reporting that he was the leader of the discord group called Thug Shaker Central that consisted of roughly 20 to 30 young men. He allegedly started uh, sharing classified documents with a private group in recent months, but the leaks gained wider attention after another member shared them in a public forum. Well, Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks Uh, sent a memo to Pentagon officials on Tuesday warning employees against leaking classified information or downloading classified documents 
from unclassified sources. Do not access or download documents with classified markings from unclassified websites, either from home or work, as the data may be classified. It may be associated with hostile foreign elements or it might contain malicious code or embedded capability that could introduce cyber threats into our information system. She wrote in the memo, which was obtained uh, by media, President uh, Biden was earlier said earlier Thursday that the U.S. was getting close to finding the person responsible for leaking the Pentagon documents that the Department of Defense had described as containing sensitive and highly classified material. I can't right now give an update, he went on to say. There is a full-blown investigation going on with the intelligence community and Justice Department, and they are getting close, he told reporters during his trip to Ireland I don't have an answer for you. Well, the president also said, I'm concerned that it happened, but there is nothing contemporaneous that I'm aware of that is of great consequence, end quote. Well, if you look at and listen to those here in the U.S. who are involved in the investigation, they might have a different perspective. The leaked documents mainly concern Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but also included intelligence on Russia, the Middle East, Israel's spy agency, Mossad, and world leaders. U.S. defense officials uh, Previously said that uh, the leak uh, could be bigger than Snowden in terms of damage to intelligence and allied relationships. Uh, The perpetrator is expected to make his first court appearance sometime tomorrow between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. local time, according to the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Massachusetts. Well, investigators uh, have taken this Air National Guardsman into custody in this case. The 21-year-old was a member, as I mentioned, of the 102nd Intelligence Wing, In a statement to ABC News on Thursday, the Air Force uh, confirmed that he uh, his duties uh, title is cyber transport systems journeyman and that he joined the Air Force in September of 2019. Stationed in Otis Air uh, National Guard Base, the group that he uh, led, Thug Shaker Central, comprised uh, just 20 to 30 mostly young men and teenagers who shared memes and talked about love of guns and video games. Uh, A member of the group first posted hundreds of pages of intelligence briefings to the chat a few months ago, telling its members that it was important for them to stay up to date on world events. Well, some members of the Thug Shake Central group defended the perpetrator of these national documents, arguing that the young guardsman only posted the materials to the group in an attempt to spark discussion and keep friends informed with classified information he was sworn to protect. This is uh, this guy was a Christian anti-war, just wanted to inform some of his friends about what's going on. A 17 year old member of the group told The New York Times, we have some people in our group who are in Ukraine. We like fighting games. We like war games, end quote. Well, members of the group said the leaked documents didn't begin to receive attention until one member of the group posted some of them to a public online forum where they were then picked up. Uh, by Russian language telegram channels. The members who spoke to the New York Times described uh, the 21-year-old as older than most of the other members of the group and was the group's undisputed leader. One of the members said that he's known uh, the 21-year-old for three years and met him in person, while another told the outlet that he had access to classified documents due to his role in the Air National Guard. It's unclear how the young airman gained access to the documents and whether someone in his position and grade would have access to them, but federal agents showed up at his uh, property and armored uh, vehicles on Thursday. Another half dozen armed agencies, agents rather, wearing tactical gear spilled out and cordoned off the area around his home, eventually taking him into custody. 
The FBI uh, stated that uh, they took the 21-year-old into custody without incident at his residence for his alleged involvement in leaking classified U.S. government and military documents. If you're a young person and you want to impress your friends, this would not be the way to go about it. Just saying. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. If you'd like to win $2,000 for mom, I got some suggestions. Now, just think about what you could do for that special mom in your life if you had $2,000 to spend on her. Well, it's time for our annual Mother's Day $2,000 giveaway at kpdq.com. You can enter once each day and complete bonus activities to increase your chances of winning. Make this year's Mother's Day extra special. Enter the 2K giveaway for mom on kpdq.com. That's coming up. Wow. President Biden announced Thursday plans to extend Medicaid and Obamacare coverage to include deferred action for childhood arrivals or DACA recipients. Today, my administration is announcing our plan to expand health coverage for dreamers. The thousands of young people brought to the United States as kids. We're not done fighting for their pathway to citizenship, but we're getting them the opportunities they deserve. In the meantime, the president tweeted. Well, the White House said that HHS will shortly propose a rule amending the definition of the lawful presence for purposes of Medicaid and Affordable Care Act coverage to include DACA recipients. If finalized, the rule will make DACA recipients eligible for these programs for the first time. Under the proposed rule, uh, DACA recipients will be able to apply for coverage through the health insurance marketplace, where they may qualify for financial assistance based on income and through their state Medicaid agency. Like all other enrollees, uh, eligibility information will be verified electronically when individuals apply for coverage, the White House announced. President Biden and Vice President Harris believe that health care should be a right, not a privilege. Together, they promise to protect and strengthen the ACA and Medicaid, lowering costs and expanding coverage so that every American has the peace, uh, the peace of mind that health insurance brings every American and every resident, apparently. Meanwhile, DACA recipients rather can take advantage of a range of federal programs with some restrictions on the availability of benefits that include experimental learning, national service and employment opportunities, assistance with renting or purchasing a home, tax credits, financial education and consumer um, consumer protection, rather health and well-being and military veterans and active duty servicemen resources. An Obama-appointed federal judge ordered two Missouri teachers opposing a school district's mandatory diversity training to shell out over $300,000 in legal fees. The teachers opposed the training that allegedly contained content forcing them to place themselves in an oppression matrix. The material also allegedly called for socioeconomic changes and asked teachers to share information they wished to keep private. Brooke Henderson was one of the two fighting back against the training. She said encouraged her to believe that America is systematically racist. If we believe in a colorblind society, it told us, then we are white supremacists. And it really just felt like there was no hope and that the wheels had come off the bus of uh, what our job as educators was. Henderson, who said she was taught for has taught for over 20 years, said the training was district wide, impacting employees ranging from bus drivers to cafeteria workers, custodial crew members, teachers, and everyone else employed in the district. Federal District District Judge Douglas Harpool, who presided over the case, awarded $313,000 in attorney's fees to the school district, arguing the district deserved to be compensated for being forced to defend against the case. 
It's absolutely excessive, says the Southeastern Legal Foundation General Counsel Kimberly Herman, who represented the plaintiffs. The point of it is to chill speech. This is a First Amendment case in the first place where our clients were required to attest and affirm to ideas they just simply don't believe in. They believe that America should be colorblind. They believe that they should not have to look at the color of the student's skin, and that's all that they uh, were fighting for. Well, the plaintiffs, according to Herman, sought only $1 in damages and were instead solely focused on getting a judge to declare the training unconstitutional. Instead, they've been hit with $300,000 in attorney's fees. Herman lambasted the judge's decision as absolutely unprecedented and argued the ruling served to discourage parents or teachers from bringing a lawsuit in the future. The National Archives and Records Administration, unsurprisingly, is pushing back after revelations this week that the White House appears to have played a role in the FBI raid on former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago compound in Florida back in August. But America First Legal, which first obtained the records, said the belated response shows a misunderstanding of federal law and that the agency knowingly or unknowingly was used by the Biden administration. The key point of dispute pertains to the special access request provision of the Presidential Records Act. NARA's allegations belie a misunderstanding of the statutory role in providing access to records under the Presidential Records Act and indicate a belief that it was not used by the Biden administration, whether knowingly or unknowingly, as a means to an end. Gene Hamilton, vice president and general counsel of America First Legal, said in a statement in a response just about 5 p.m. Wednesday, more than 24 hours after the story was widely reported by multiple news outlets, including this program, the uh, National Archives disputed recent um, Uh, press stories and social media posts about the agency's actions in relation to the investigation of documents held at Trump's Florida home is not accurate. Emails from the National Archives emerged from a public records request by America First Legal released this week. The messages indicate the FBI obtained access to the 15 boxes of records at Mar-a-Lago through a special access request from President Joe Biden's White House. The special access provision of the Presidential Records Act specifies records to be made available to an incumbent president if such records contain information that is needed for the conduct of current business of the incumbent president's office and that it is not otherwise available. However, the statement from National Archives contends the allegations confuse the agency's statutory role in providing access to records under the Presidential Records Act with the Justice Department investigation and the FBI's subsequent search of Mar-a-Lago. NARA routinely makes presidential records in our legal custody available to all three branches of the federal government via our special access provision of the PRA. I have no idea. The National Archives statement says this provision authorizes executive branch agencies such as the Department of Justice to make requests through the sitting president. The statement went on to say the PRA special access uh, request process for the Mar-a-Lago boxes was described in the May 10th, 2022 letter from the acting archivist of the United States, Deborah Seidel Wall, to Evan Cochran, uh, one of the former president's um, representatives with NARA uh, posted on its website in August of 2022. This letter that the Department of Justice asked the president request the NARA pro- uh, provide the FBI with access to the boxes at issue so that the FBI and others in the intelligence community could examine them. On April of 2020, 
rather 2022, the White House Counsel's Office affirming a request from the Department of Justice supported by an FBI letterhead memorandum formally transmitted the request that NARA provide the FBI access to the boxes for its review within seven days with the possibility that the FBI might request copies of specific documents following its review of the boxes. So they are contending that this was uh, simply a matter of chain of command, that it was essentially a, a technicality that the White House was involved at all. Now, whether or not this will ultimately be resolved and one side will say, oh, yes, this was a misunderstanding, not likely, but there you have the other side of the story. Republicans on Wednesday locked up uh, the brakes on the Oregon legislature as Democrats added pressure to the accelerator. Yes, Republicans and Democrats are sparring over the legislature's pace. Gary Warner at the Oregon Capitol Bureau points out that House Republicans joined their Senate counterparts in adopting the parliamentary stall tactic of requiring that bills be read in full before final passage. But just as it seems the House was headed toward the same legislative logjam facing the Senate, both parties appeared to ease off, at least for now. Well, late Wednesday, a deal was struck between party leaders. Republicans agreed to allow bills to be read by their title only, substantially quickening the pace of bills coming to a final vote. Democrats, um, they agreed to delay consideration of a contentious gun control bill measure originally scheduled for yesterday until early next week. Well, the moves came after both chambers endured marathon sessions on Tuesday. The House met for six hours and 54 minutes to pass just five bills. The time stretched with the required recitation of the text of each measure as it came up for a final vote. We're moving about as fast as molasses in December, from freshman representative uh, Emerson Levy, a Democrat from Bend, lamenting the pace. Well, a bill Levy uh, co-sponsored to allow a county's broader control over funds from tax lien forfeiture revenue was scheduled for a vote on Tuesday. It didn't happen. Like most bills on the uh, daily calendar, it was carried over to the next day. Adding to the snail's pace was the propensity of lawmakers to rise to add comments to bills up for a vote, even those with no opposition. House Bill 3426, which would require 988 crisis hotline centers to have policies and train staff to serve firefighters and other first responders, drew a dozen speakers over 50 minutes of debate. It then passed unanimously and was sent to the Senate. So molasses or um, hit the accelerator? Yes, the Oregon legislature is in session. President Biden's uh, claim to have no knowledge of Hunter's business dealings is becoming harder to maintain as more documents are collected. And former President Donald Trump arrived in Manhattan late uh, Wednesday evening. He revealed on social media that he was set to appear before New York Attorney General Letitia James for a deposition today. In September, James accused the former president and three of his children of fraud and filed a lawsuit in New York court in Manhattan Thursday's deposition uh, laid out to evidence that the Trumps acted intentionally to misrepresent the values of real estate properties to obtain favorable loans and tax benefits, according to Reuters. In a series of posts on Truth Social, the former president called the lawsuit another unjust and ridiculous persecution of the 45th president of the United States. The former president also said he would use the case to prove his own business success. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show coming up in our second hour a conversation I had with Peter Mutabazi. He's the author of Now I Am Known. He has a fascinating story and we'll share it with you. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
Well, the person behind a major leak of secret U.S. intelligence documents is reportedly a man in his 20s who worked on a military base and shared the classified information on a chat app Discord. At 21, he was among the oldest in the group. Artificial intelligence chatbot ChatGPT has created a 51-minute episode of the Joe Rogan Experience featuring nearly flawless representations of the podcast host's voice and the voice of the open AI CEO Sam Altman. The episode begins with an AI-generated Rogan welcoming the audience to the first episode of the Joe Rogan AI Experience, speaking in a manner and tone that is difficult to distinguish from the real person. I'm your host, Joe Rogan, or at least that's what this AI model thinks I sound like. Let me tell you, folks, this is some next-level stuff we've got going on here today. Faux Rogan continues, every single word of this podcast has been generated with the help of ChatGPT. Well, throughout the podcast, the synthetic voices of Rogan and Altman discuss numerous topics, including the need for ethics in AI, ChatGPT's potential impact on the content industry, whether people should be concerned about fake AI content, and Elon Musk speaking about open AI. The conversation between the two fake voices might appear authentic to an uninformed listener. However, there are certain instances where Rogan and Altman's syntax and speech patterns might seem overly cumbersome or inhuman. At least that's for now. The YouTube channel has posted the AI-generated conversation, also released a second episode with a podcast between a synthetic voice of Rogan and former President Donald Trump. Uh, Joe, it's great to be here, faux Trump says, toward the start of the podcast. I'm doing fantastic, just fantastic. The energy in this room is tremendous, end quote. Well, throughout the video, the AI... Con- Uh, completely and competently handles Trump's manner of speaking and common use of strong adjectives like massive, incredible, brilliant. The tone of Rogan's voice has also been improved from the previous video. However, faux Trump noticeably lacks the robust vocal inflections of his human counterpart. You can see how this could be used and abused in ways that we may not be quite prepared for. A federal appeals court in New Orleans has partially overturned a lower court decision blocking access to a popular abortion drug. The new decision keeps the drug Mifepristone uh, available for purchase to consumers with some restrictions. The Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans ruled two to one Wednesday just before midnight to keep the drug available only to be dispensed up to seven weeks, not 10 or not by mail. The drug, which is used in combination with a second drug, Uh, terminates pregnancies and was approved for use by the Food and Drug Administration more than two decades ago. But they never responded to requests, and we'll talk more about that later in the second hour, for information um, and disputes to their authority over some 6,000, 9,000 days ago. Twitter CEO Elon Musk disappoints supporters by limiting his free speech platform, and a non-bitery Dr. Phil guest claims just because I give birth... Doesn't make me a woman. Well, yeah, it kind of does. I mean, you don't have to have a child to be a woman, but if you have a child, you are a woman. Just saying. President Putin personally greenlit the arrest of the Wall Street Journal reporter, we are learning. The Russian president approved the arrest of a U.S. reporter on espionage charges for the first time since the Cold War. The Russian president's endorsement of the move reflects the growing influence of Kremlin hardliners who push for deepening a confrontation with Washington they view as irreversible. The people said, speaking on condition of anonymity to discuss the matter, 
that uh, matters that aren't public. The detention of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich on um, the 29th of last month triggered angry denunciations from the United States and its allies, and we're hoping more than that, simple denunciations will follow. Gershkovich uh, could face up to 20 years in prison if he's convicted of espionage. Russia's more than 99% conviction rate has been internationally criticized as part of a criminal justice system widely seen as unfair. He's the first U.S. journalist to be arrested in Russia on allegations of spying, again, since the Cold War. Beer Colossus Anheuser-Busch saw its value plummet more than $5 billion since the company announced its branding partnership with controversial transgender social media influencer Dylan Mulvaney. Since March of th- March 31st, shares of Bud Light's parent company have fallen by nearly 4%, knocking down the company's market capitalization from $132.38 billion to $127.13 billion on Wednesday. Anheuser-Busch stock fizzled more than 1.5% on Wednesday. The entire supply chain that helps take Anheuser-Busch products to a market is feeling the impact of Bud Light's choice to go woke. I've never seen such little sales as in the past few weeks, the past few days, rather, when people don't buy this beer. I can't feed my family, said one driver. The Biden administration is proposing new limits on vehicle tailpipe emissions, seeking to spar rather spur U.S. automakers to generate two thirds of their sales through electric vehicles in a decade. The new standards for light duty vehicles announced Wednesday by the Environmental Protection Agency will apply to the 2027 32 model years. Uh, they would be the nation's toughest ever restrictions on car pollution and one President Biden's one of his most aggressive moves yet to combat climate change. The proposal moves beyond the president's ambitious target for half of all new vehicles uh, sales to be electronic powered by 2030. The EPA projects that the EVs could account for 67 percent of new vehicle sales by 2032 model year. The the, uh, National Review rather says the aggressive plan raises a number of concerns for automakers and consumers. Gas powered vehicles still make up over 90 percent of the market share of new vehicles, reflecting the fact that. Electric vehicles are more expensive. Also, the um, infrastructure to maintain and sustain all of those electric vehicles is called into question as well. National Public Radio said on Wednesday it would no longer use Twitter after being slapped with labels linking the media organization to the U.S. government. NPR, National Public Radio, expressed outrage and has not tweeted links to its reporting since last week when Twitter added a state-affiliated media tag to NPR's profile, a label that put NPR in the company of foreign state-run media outlets such as Russia's TASS and China's Xinhua. Uh, David Harsinyi suggested why not suspend taking tax dollars so you can lose the label. Well, there's a thought. European companies or countries, rather, are looking to build walls along their borders. Building border walls is a racist, sexist, heteronormative, evil, capitalist pig thing to do. At least that's what we've been told. At least if you're an American, everybody else in the universe thinks it's a good idea and that perhaps the illegal immigrants should shuffle uh, to their respective countries um, before entering uh, the European countries. Well, Donald Trump was famously a fan of border walls, which made them a very, very evil thing for All right-thinking people, we were told, in the United States. But somewhere along the way, the hard experience of being invaded um, and expensive squatters shaped the actual behavior of European countries, if not exactly what they uh, were willing to say to the TV cameras. 
Europe is slowly but surely coming to the idea that border walls are a necessary evil. Both things being true. Elon Musk called a journalist out for failing to provide a single instance of hate speech on Twitter. The CEO poked holes in a BBC reporter's suggestion that there is more hateful content on the social media app since Musk's takeover. The reporter, James Claiborne, couldn't name a single example of hateful content he'd seen on the site. Chuck Calesto says Elon eats BBC reporter for dinner, BBC journalist. There's been a rise in hateful content on Twitter. Elon Musk, give me an example. Journalist, I can't. Elon Musk, you just lied. The DNC has cut ties with lawyer Mark Elias. The Democratic National Committee is cutting ties with the lawyer who heavily pushed the discredited Steele dossier that sought to link the former president to Russia falsely. Elias, who has represented the DNC since 2009, has had several disagreements with the committee. Elias Law Group, his firm founded in 2021, works on behalf of many Democratic lawmakers and entities such as the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. Between November of 21 and February of 23, the DNC paid Elias Law Group over $2 million. And since October of 21, the firm has pulled in over $34 million from campaigns and committees, including those linked to Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Senator Raphael Warnock, and Senator Mark Kelly, solidifying itself as a Democratic legal powerhouse. His law firm will continue working with the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, and the Attorneys General's Association and other party organizations. Donald Trump filed a lawsuit against former lawyer Michael Cohen. A source close to the former president has revealed that The former president filed the suit on Wednesday against his ex-attorney, demanding more than $500 million in damages. The 30-page legal filing submitted to the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Florida accuses Cohen of breaching attorney-client privilege and unjustly enriching himself at Trump's expense. Cohen resigned as counsel for the uh, Trump organization in 2017 when Trump was inaugurated, but continued to represent him personally until June of 2018. The lawsuit points to statements made to federal prosecutors who claim Cohen's crimes were motivated by personal greed and effectuated by repeatedly using his power and influence for deceptive ends. Close quote. Well, 68 percent of parents delve into their savings to help their adult children. That's headline news. Well, we'll tell you more about that in just a few moments. Also coming up in the next hour, uh, we will hear from Peter Mutabazi. He's the author of Now I Am Known. We'll also talk about the federal judge acknowledging the humanity of the unborn and this back and forth over the abortion drug and the outpouring, as uh, Cal Thomas refers to what happened in Asbury and what we might make of it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, 68% of parents delve into their savings to help their adult children. They're stepping in to help their uh, grown children when they're in financial trouble. But many are sacrificing their own savings in the process. Over two-thirds, or 68% of parents of adult children, have made or are currently making a financial sacrifice to help their kids financially. That's according to a new bank rate survey. Parents say that they sacrificed retirement savings, 43%, emergency savings, 51%, to pay down their own debt at 49%, or reaching a financial milestone at 55%. Um, 68% of parents say that they're sacrificing their own savings to support their kids or their grown kids. 
The Disneyland Resort is saying goodbye to Splash Mountain. The 33-year-old attraction is set to close on the 31st of next month for an extensive re Imaging process, Disneyland officials announced on Wednesday. The last day of operation will be on the 30th, and the ride will officially close on the 31st. Disneyland officials said while the attraction itself isn't getting torn down, it will undergo a complete makeover and returned rethemed as the Princess and the Frog attraction, titled Tiana's Bayou Adventure, which is scheduled to open in late 2024 at the U.S. Disney Parks. Well, uh, as a result of an emergency use authorization and rapid rollout of vaccination programs, abridging standards uh, clinic trials, Danish scientists reviewed 52 batches of the Pfizer COVID-19 shot and found variations between them regarding the number of severe adverse events. That's reported after injection. Well, the study was published on the 30th of March in the European Journal of Clinical Investigation. It showed that out of nearly 8 million COVID-19 shot doses administered in Denmark from December of 2020 to January of 22, there were nearly 69,000 suspected adverse events across 52 different shot batches. In addition, more than 14,000 of these suspected events were classified as severe. The study used data available from the Danish Medical Agency and other reporting systems, all uh, akin to the vaccine adverse event reporting system used in the U.S. The study showed a correlation between higher SAE occurrences, according to the, and that's the um, uh, incidence of serious uh, serious adverse events, is the uh, SAE, occurrences according to a person's batch number and those receiving two mRNA COVID-19 shot doses. Well, Dr. Peter McCullough, an internist, epidemiologist, and one of the most published cardiologists in America with over 1,000 publications and 660 citations in the National Library of Medicine, explained the Danish study found that 71% of serious adverse events came from 4.2% of the doses. McCullough noted that with more side effects associated with just a small percentage of the doses means the majority of COVID-19 shot risks reside in the shot itself rather than the person receiving it. These are critically important results, he says. They imply the COVID-19 vaccine debacle is indeed a product of problem, um, is a product problem rather, and not due to the patient susceptibility in most circumstances. Additionally, the lack of inspections has led to a safety disaster. Some unfortunate patients are getting too much MNRA, contaminants or both, and thus are exposed to damaging and, in some cases, lethal injections. The researchers were clear to underscore that more research is necessary to confirm their results. The author stated that, in conclusion, the results suggest that uh, the existence of a batch-dependent safety signal uh, for the vaccine and more studies were warranted to explore this preliminary observation and its consequences. Another, Dr. Jessica Rose, a COVID-19 researcher and expert in molecular biology and biochemistry, chemistry rather, stated that there is a lot to lot and even a vital to vital um, variation. So a lot going on there. The authors claim that further investigation of this lot to lot variation needs to be done. And I can't uh, agree more, Rose went on to say. The manner in which this is done is important. I commend the author for providing this evidence, and I believe that we must examine the contents of the vials directly as an obvious next step. And then once we have a better idea of which batches are contaminated and how they are contaminated, for example, then we can cross-reference these batches back to deaths and other SAEs 
to more precisely define why people are experiencing a variety of adverse events. Well, in a Addition, toxic contamination of COVID-19 shot batches and even individual vials has previously occurred. In 21, Japan recalled three batches of the Moderna COVID MNRA uh, shot, totaling more than 1.6 million doses due to finding 39 vials contaminated with stainless steel particles. Liberty Council's founder and chairman Matt Staver said the medical literature is catching up and exposing the human cost and damage done by these injections. As scientists and researchers continue this important work, we expect more studies in the near future that validate the dangers of the shots. They have never been safe nor effective, he went on to conclude. Well, U.S. troops are in Ukraine. Among the recent leaks of classified Pentagon intelligence information is the revelation that several NATO countries, including the U.S., have sent a small number of troops into Ukraine. Besides the U.S., other NATO countries listed there are the United Kingdom, France, and Latvia, all NATO countries, listed since special forces, uh, who are most likely there to train Ukrainian forces. The trouble is, if these classified leaks are accurate, it could give uh, weight to Moscow's claim that Russia is not merely fighting against Ukraine, but in fact is fighting NATO. Stay tuned. Millions in transactions between Hunter and the Chinese have been found. Republicans digging into the Biden family What they're referring to as corruption have recently unearthed more bank records, which purportedly show that China sent to Hunter Biden now defunct uh, joint venture company Hudson West III one million dollars. The Chinese American Cathay Bank, which has offices in both Los Angeles and China, sent GOP senators Ron Johnson and Chuck Grassley uh, bank records that show the transactions between Hunter's former company and the also now defunct Chinese state owned company CEFC China Energy. Why would Beijing be so willing to share this uh, clearly damaging information? Well, according to Johnson, it's the Chinese government telling Joe Biden, we got the goods on you, buddy, and we're willing to dish it up. That's their speculation on the subject. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, the metro area that saw the highest number of residents move out was Los Angeles, with 90,000 people leaving last year. Chicago and New York Uh, New York City, I should say, followed suit with residents' uh, losses of more than 68,000 from Cook County, 50,000 from Queens County, and 40,000 from Kings and Bronx counties. Meanwhile, Arizona, Texas, and Florida are experiencing the opposite as they harbor the top countries, uh, rather counties, by population growth in uh, in the nation, respectively. Indeed, the top 10 growing counties in the U.S. all happen to be in red states. The fact of the matter is Americans who value freedom, opportunity and lawfulness are going to those states that are upholding it. Democrat run states are not as much, uh, which is why so many are fleeing. Now, interestingly, this is what Gavin Newsom is going to Florida and other red states to um, try to tell them how it should be done. A GOP mega donor has given woke Harvard three hundred million dollars. With friends like these, well, Ken Griffin, billionaire owner of the hedge fund Citadel Securities, recently announced that he will be gifting his alma mater, Harvard University, a $300 million donation. Griffin also happened to be one of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' biggest campaign donors during his successful reelection. But it wasn't just DeSantis. Griffin was one of the top donors to Republicans during the 2020 midterms, shelling out millions. So why would Griffin send hundreds of millions of dollars to one of the schools leading the charge for 
hard left woke ideology? Well, the short answer is name recognition and perhaps a little virtue signaling. Thanks to Griffin's donation, Harvard will rename its Graduate School of Arts and Sciences after him. The question we're wondering is how long before Harvard removes Griffin's name for his history of supporting Republicans? We'll keep an eye on that. An appeals court has preserved uh, partial access to the abortion pill, mifepristone, but with tighter rules. And anti-Christian hostility is reaching unprecedented levels in culture, government, under the current administration. Senator Feinstein asked Chuck Schumer to let another Democrat take her committee spot on the Judiciary Committee while a second Democrat is calling for her resignation. We're going to take a break. Uh, You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic at the top of the hour. A few more minutes of headline news and then a conversation with Peter Mutabazi. His book, Now I Am Known. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, a conversation with Peter Mutabazi. He's the author of Now I Am Known. We'll also take a look at the federal judge who acknowledged the humanity of the unborn child. And Cal Thomas reflects on the outpouring, what happened at Asbury and what's likely to happen next. That's coming up later this hour. Hey, if you'd like to win 2,000 G's for your, I guess, I guess 2,000 K. G's is more than that. We're not going to give 2,000 G's. That would be an awful lot of, <laughs> I never know the alphabet that's, that applies to money. Anyway, $2,000, that's the right way to say it. Just think about what you could do for your mom this Mother's Day with that $2,000 to spend on her. Well, it's time for our annual Mother's Day $2,000 giveaway at kpdq.com. You can enter once every day. You can also complete bonus activities, and that will increase your chances of winning. Make this year's Mother's Day extra special. Enter the two letter K giveaway for mom at kpdq.com. Well, let's see. We're going to continue to look at a few of the news stories before our conversation with Peter Mutabazi. In Tennessee, a second expelled Democrat lawmaker has been reappointed, as expected. NPR and PBS quit Twitter over government-funded label on their accounts. And a Texas dairy explosion has left at least 18,000 cows dead and one person critically injured. Well, on this day in history, 1743, Thomas Jefferson is born in Shadwell in the Virginia Colony. 1861, at the start of the Civil War, Fort Sumter in South Carolina falls to Confederate forces. 1943, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt dedicates the Jefferson Memorial in Washington, D.C. on the 20th anniversary of the third American president's birth. 18, or rather, 1986, Pope John Paul II visits the Great Synagogue of Rome and the first recorded papal visit of its kind to a Jewish house of worship. 1992, the Great Chicago Flood takes place in the city's century-old tunnel system. 1999, right-to-die advocate Dr. Jack Kevorkian is sentenced to in uh, Pontiac, Michigan, to 10 to 25 years in prison for second-degree murder in the lethal injection of a Lou Gehrig's disease patient. He would serve eight years in prison. 2005, Eric Rudolph pleads guilty to carrying out the deadly bombing at the 1996 Atlanta Olympics and three other attacks in back-to-back court appearances in Birmingham, Alabama and Atlanta. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, President Trump announces that the United States, France and Britain carried out joint airstrikes in Syria meant to punish President Bashar al-Assad for his alleged use of chemical weapons. Well, a secular organization that has reportedly been awarded the contract 
To replace the Catholic priests of Holy Name College at Walter Reed Military Hospital doesn't just specialize in providing administrative and religious staffing. During Holy Week, Walter Reed National Military Center issued a cease and desist order to the Franciscan priests who had been providing religious services and ministering to the spiritual needs of the hospital's Catholic patients. The move violates First Amendment right to free exercise of religion. That's what the Archdiocese for Military Services USA, or AIMS, said in an announcement responding to Walter Reed's decision. Well, while Walter Reed maintains that it still has one Catholic chaplain to provide the sacraments to the hospital's Catholic patients, the Archdiocese notes that he is in the process of separating from the Army. Well, in a statement provided, uh, Walter Reed notes that the contract with the priests wasn't canceled, but simply allowed to expire. I talked about this yesterday. WRNMMC did not terminate the contract. It was up for renewal and rebidding. The Catholic priests were previously provided care, were not awarded the new contract. Well, the contract, the Holy Name College, was not terminated, but expired, uh, was the story. It also says that the contract is still under review and that it cannot yet reveal the name of the contractor chosen to replace the priests of the Holy Name College. You're currently reviewing the uh, current contract and are unable to share the specifics. The statement does suggest, however, that the new contract will be awarded to Mac Global LLC. Well, question nine: Why is it the why is the new contractor mentioned as a for-profit secular company? Mac Global LLC. Well, on its website, Mac Global LLC cites as its core competencies telework consulting services, administrative and religious staffing, transportation services and roadway construction, workforce development and training, and product and equipment supply. Well, the Mac Global website bills the company as a one-spot procurement contact, a contractor rather for janitorial supplies, industrial machinery, aggregates and raw materials, and a vast selection of other products and equipment. It also says the company provides products ranging from gym equipment and tactical gear accessories to watertight doors and apparently religious staffing. It's become something of a trope for political actors and thought leaders to seek the engagement of young people and to praise it uh, once they have it. Well, thus, do we see it heralding when the youth are out in force clamoring for gun control, sexual libertinism, abortion rights, defunding the police, environmental restrictions in the name of climate change, free college tuition and socialism or other types of collectivist policies? The popular narrative is that if young people are involved, the cause must be worthy and listening to the voices of our future is inevitably a path to progress. History says otherwise. So says Laura Hollis, writing that it's time to stop worshiping youth over wisdom. She writes that take the Cambodian genocide of the 1970s, for example. The Khmer Rouge communists took power After a civil war and collapse of the government, they were responsible for the deaths of between 1.5 and 3 million Cambodians, either through imprisonment, torture and execution or starvation in forced labor camps that became the infamous killing fields. According to a 2011 article in the um, Pyon Pen Post, the average age of the Khmer Rouge soldier was 17. Oppressive regimes love to use the youth as the tools of their murder and destruction. In both the former Soviet Union and in China, during the Cultural Revolution, 
Mao Zedong, children were encouraged to turn on their turn in their parents for falling short of communist ideals. Many were then imprisoned and and or executed. Ugandan warlord Joseph Kony kidnapped thousands of children and teenagers, trained them to become his army rapists, torturers, and executioners. ISIS and other Islamic terrorist organizations recruit and conscript. Uh, by force and indoctrinate children and adolescents to become soldiers and suicide bombers. There are plenty of reasons why young people are so often at the vanguard of brutal revolutionary movements. In addition to their enthusiasm and energy, they're highly suggestible, easily swayed by inflammatory rhetoric, susceptible to black and white thinking, and thus more easily incentivized to violence, eager to prove themselves, much more inclined to believe in the perfectibility of people and the larger world and hardwired to look for a sense of belonging. They also lack experience, have little knowledge of history or much understanding of human nature, all of which tend to provide perspective, nuance, and better judgment. Revolutionaries and ideologues want blind adherence, not hard questions. While the United States has not descended into the barbarism of the events described uh, a moment ago, we are already suffering the consequences of a culture that obsessively idolizes youth and the ignorance that accompanies it. This is certainly evident in matters of sexuality and education. The sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s, aided by the explosion of mass media, has produced a culture that promotes irresponsible sexual behavior in young people, 24-7, 365. The consequences have been disastrous. Not only are rates of sexually transmitted diseases highest in the 15 to 24 age range, the hypersexualization of every aspect of their lives has contributed to record levels of mental illness in young people, low self-esteem, depression, anxiety, self-mutilation, eating disorders, even suicide, which is now the second leading cause of death in that age group. A country that held wisdom in higher esteem would rethink things, but not us. We're doubling down. Our schools are now injecting pornographic texts, workshops on sexual kink and bizarre theories of sexual and gender identity into the curriculum and classroom culture. Meanwhile, American students are falling behind their counterparts in other developed nations in real academic subjects. It is a um, sad commentary, and it's not really progress. We need to stop worshiping youth over wisdom. Up next, a conversation with Peter Mutabazi. He's the author of Now I Am Known. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, at the age of 10, my next guest, Peter Mutabazi, ran away from home in rural Uganda to escape his abusive father. For five years, he survived on the streets of Kampala, a city of 1.5 million, until one man saw potential in him. This one person not only supported him through school, but altered his life in every possible way. Well, he has since served as a relief coordinator during the Rwandan genocide, worked for the International Committee for the Red Cross during the Sudan conflict, graduated from three universities, worked for an international children's relief agency, became a U.S. citizen, fostered countless children, and became a single adoptive parent. He speaks seven languages. He's traveled to more than 100 countries as a U.S. Uh, international advocate for children. Wow. Well, in his book, Now I Am Known, How a Street Kid Turned Foster Dad Found Acceptance and True Worth, Mr. Mutabazi, he shares his journey from hopelessness to finding faith and coming full circle 
to rescue other vulnerable children. It is an inspiring story, but one that is not just intended to inspire, but to convey a message that may change your life as well. Again, my guest, Peter Mutabazi, he is the author of this um, inspiring book, Now I Am Known, How a Street Kid Turned Foster Dad Found Acceptance and True Worth. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me here. It's really a joy to be with you. This is such an amazing story. It's heartbreaking when we read about your early days and why you ran away from home. But it also reminds us that every life has value. Share a little bit of your background for our listeners who haven't had the benefit yet of reading your book, Now I Am Known. Yes. Well, I grew up in a, in a, in a small village at the border of Uganda and Rwanda, you know, where life was miserable in every way, shape, form you could imagine. And it wasn't just our family. It was everyone. You know, poverty is all we knew. You know, most people didn't have enough to, to eat for a day. Most people didn't have any dreams or any inspiration for life. And that was me as well. But actually, I did not have a name until when I was two years old. Because for every 100 children who were born in my village, 60 would die before the age of two. So my mom waited until when I was two. She's like, he survived, so I'm going to call him the gift given to us by God. So that's kind of where I come from, you know, where I had to grow up so quickly. By the age of four, I began to realize that our family was different. We hardly had any, any food to eat. There was no glimpse of hope in any shape form. But also, I realized that my dad was different from other dads. Like he was mean and abusive to everyone at home, including my mother. And so for me, the glimpse of people were nowhere. And uh, I had to go fetch water three miles away twice a day. I could eat one meal every other day. We never had any choice. I never had a pair of shoes until when I was 16 years old. So for me, there wasn't anything that would give me a zeal to, to dream for tomorrow uh, because of poverty on one side, but also a mean dad on the other end. Uh, and that truly was my life, you know, every day until at the age of 10 when I could not take it anymore. When you write about your father abusing you, we're talking about physical, verbal, uh, in every way that a, a child can be abused. You were told by your father that you were worthless, that a dog had more value than you did because at least a dog had purpose. This was the message that you heard from your father up until you ran away from home at age 10. And you mentioned right. that this was uncommon um, among uh, sons and, and fathers in your village. What role did your mom play in all of this? And were there other siblings? Yes, I'm the oldest of five. You know, and of course, you know, we had a mom who, who cared for us, who advocated for us. But I think I, I really dealt with much guilt because I saw my mom get beatings because she was advocating for us to have food. Or she would ask my father, like, hey, would you help them go to school? But she would be the one who gets the abuse. So on one side, yes, I had a mother that loved me and that cared for me. But on the other hand, I could not protect her because of the abuse I had to watch happen. Yes, I come from a culture where men come first, you know, then women second class and children third class. So it almost like he had a right to do whatever he wanted and no one could stop him. You know, so I think as a 10-year-old, I just didn't know what to do. And I thought he would take my life before I run away. Now, at 10 years old, kids often think about running away. You actually did it. Did you have a plan or did you just need to get out of the situation you were in and just uh, take it a day, a moment at a time? You know, well, yes, you know, I think, you know, kids from hard places, we learn how to grow really quickly. I think at five, I was thinking more like at 
12 year old mm-hmm. you know by 10 i was thinking more like a 25 year old you know I, he sent me to go buy cigarettes so it had rained and it was at three in the morning so you know they were all damaged so i thought if i go back home he's gonna kill me so i thought you know rather than let him kill me i'd rather die in the hands of a stranger so for me running away going to the bus station and asking which bus went the farthest it's not like i was looking for a better life it was how far can I run? If I die, he will never get to bury my own body. That was my zeal of wanting to run away uh, that night. So your anticipation wasn't a better life of survival. It was simply escaping the hell that you had been in for the first 10 years of your life. Absolutely. It was more like I'd rather die, but I'd rather die in the hands of someone else, not my father, mm-hmm. you know? So at a 10-year-old, I think that was my whole concept of I'd rather die you know, that he would never even have a, a joy of burying my own body. You know, so that's why I asked the lady at the bus station of all these buses, which goes the farthest. And I got on the one that took me up to Kampala. You know, I had never been 20 miles away from my village. And I went 500 kilometers away and I ended up in Kampala. Mm. You write about taking the first step to fulfilling your potential after the trauma and abuse that you had endured at 10 years old. What did you think about your potential, if there was any, and how did you even come to the conclusion that perhaps there is some value to this life that I've been told has no value? Well, I didn't have that. You know, I had lived in the streets for about five years. I killed a stranger began to feed me, you know. He would feed me every other week, and he would come, and, you know, he's the only person who called me by my name because no one ever really saw me as a human being. Most people saw us, like, they treated us like stray animals, so I wasn't... I was a garbage boy. I was a dirty little thief. That's how people viewed me. But this person did. He always fed me. He always called me by my name. And one day he said, hey, Peter, if you have an opportunity to go to school, would you love to go to school? And I think for me, that's when I began to dream that if this stranger sees the best in me, if this stranger thinks I have a potential, then maybe I do. So when he suggested taking me to school, well, with, with the promise that there was food there. <laughs> so for me, the, the whole attraction was, if food is there, I, I'm going to be okay. And so I went to the boarding school, and I began to dream because I had kind words from this stranger and from my teachers. But they began to believe in me, and they're like, wait a minute, if they believe in me, maybe there's something about me that I can work hard to prove to them that actually – you know, I was worth of saving or I was worth of, you know, letting be at school. And that's really what helped me to begin to excel because of what they believed in me, you know. So they said, I'm, you know, you're Peter, you're kind, you're brave, you're, you're chosen. So for, for me to steal from others didn't feel like I should so because I had some people who believed in me, you know, the teachers. You know, I would fail, get F, F, but every time I got a D, a teacher would say, Peter, you are smart. And I began to believe those words mm. and really began to help me heal the wounds that I'd had all my life that I would never mount anything. Now these teachers were saying, no, you're special. You are belong. You are part of us and you matter. That began to really help me believe in myself. You began to see yourself through a different lens um, right. than you had uh, previously. Looking back, did this help you understand how God and others see you? Was there a broader interpretation to this encouragement that you were now receiving? 
Yes, I think he told me the life of Joseph. You know, he said, you remember Joseph? You told me the story of how his brothers found him. And then they were scared that he's going to kill them on how he responded. He said, for what you meant for evil, God has used it to save lives. And for me, that helped me to know like, oh, no matter where I've come from, I can actually use it for good to save myself and maybe one day to save others. And that's really what helped me in some way really overcome the trauma, overcome the the, the rage and the abuse that I had had from my from my father, but too that I began to do well. Then in some way I began to think, wait a minute, if I really take the anger and what my father told me, then I'm letting him ruin my future. So I was like, you know what? No, you know, I'm going to take what I have now. I'm going to believe in what I have now, and I'm not gonna let my the past in some way determine what my future was going to be. And that really helped me to excel because I wasn't bringing my baggage. I wasn't looking back and, Mm -hmm. you know, what he had said in some way, like feel like, oh, people said I'm garbage, maybe I'm garbage. No, I think I I didn't want my father to win or ruin my future. And that helped me to really excel. And how they saw the best in me, you know, if a stranger can love me unconditionally, there's something about me that he loves. And that really helps me to know that God loves me no matter who I was. We're talking with Peter Mutabazi. He is the author of Now I'm Known, How a Street Kid Turned Foster Dad Found Acceptance and True Worth. The book is published by Baker. We'll continue our conversation in a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with uh, Peter Mutabazi. He is the author of Now I'm Known, How a Street Kid Turned Foster Dad, Found Acceptance, and True Worth. The story is about so much more than that, and it's uh, definitely a good inspirational read, but it may challenge you as well in uh, thinking how you look to those who uh, seem desperate uh, and need our help. Now, were there times uh, when you were living in survival mode that you were tempted to give up? Oh yes, I think you know. You know, every time I I, I I failed or I was scared of what I didn't know what the future or what I was doing, yeah, I, I felt like I'm I'm gonna give up. You know, this is not for me. But I had people alongside who would always remind me, "You've walked a long way. You can do it." And that really helped me to stay put and stay on the course in some way because I had farmers and friends that were willing to to come alongside my my journey. Mm. What do you say to those who are at this moment in survival mode? What advice do you have for them? Well, I would say, you know, uh, uh, the survival mode is, is sometimes it hinders to see what the potential we have or what, what, what the future has for us. But if we can accept where we are, if we can embrace it, but then get to you to say, Lord, you have me here. But how can I use to help others and to help myself? I think we get to see the value even when it doesn't look okay you know, that we begin to see the little glimpse in hope in how he's allowed us to go through this, that he can really help us to overcome that. You know, I, I love to look back to know that my father didn't kill me. I survived on the streets. Well, that's God's grace that really helped me that he wanted me to survive and live on. So even for you who's listening, you might say, the world is bleak. I'm going through a difficult time. But maybe you could go back a little farther in your life and say, how did he carry you through before? How did he help you to get to where you are rather than being a fog of what today to look back and say, he's walked with you. He's been before you and he will help you even in this situation to heal you, to make you overcome and to guide you 
to the to the best place that he wants you to be. You were identified by a stranger who took um, had compassion for you, and he arranged for you to attend a boarding school. You began to receive an education. During this season, did you have a vision of what your life might be like or a desire to reach back and help others who had been in similar situations in need of a parent, a foster parent? Um, how did you see yourself through this process where you're being educated and um, perhaps for the first time in your young life began to imagine that you had a future and a hope? Well, so I'm the oldest of five. Mm-hmm. So my my siblings had remained at home and were still going through the same abuse I had gone through. So as I began to go, you know, grade 11, I began to think, wait a minute, I can truly do the best I can to rescue my brothers and sisters. I knew I could not take them away, but if I can be example for them and, and help them, uh, you know, really have education that I would have rescued them from the abuse and for the future of what was, that was going to be for them. So from a, from get-go, I think I had a desire to help my own siblings. And that helped me because I helped them. They've all gone through university and, and have good jobs, you know, but also they were able to see the example. I think in their mind, they were more like, if Peter can do it, we can do it as well. But that really helped them to excel as well. Through the kindness of a stranger, on how he really helped me, that I knew I can do that for my siblings. Mm-hmm. And so that was easy for me to do for others as well, my nieces and, and, and nephews, you know, my cousins, you know, that that became my mission to truly help others because I saw how the kindness of one human being had changed my own life. You um, spent some time in Rwanda. You saw the devastation uh, from the uh, genocide that had taken uh, place there. How did that uh, affect you? And did that uh, impact how you were able to get rid of the hate for your father and what had happened um, as a result of his hatred toward you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I went to you know, Rwanda, I was rescuing children. And on, on a daily basis, I would see more than 2,000 dead bodies. And my first day to see that, I thought, I'm going to die. And I could not imagine how could people kill their fellow humans that way. But as I pointed a finger, I began to look at myself because I had wanted to harm my dad as well. Like I hated my dad so, so much. But that's why I had not become a believer, because I wanted to go back home and break his leg and, you know, do some physical harm. But I realized that before I could point a finger to people who were doing what they were doing in Rwanda, that I was capable of taking someone else's life, especially my dad. And that's when I, you know, I went to the driver and said, you know what, I, want, I know we're going to die, but please, please, please pray for me so I can go to heaven. And, and he looked at me and said, well, you go to church, you work for Compassion International, you're a believer. And I said, no, I look like one. I act like one, but I don't know him as my Lord and Savior. And that's how I, I really became a believer, and I forgave my dad. Not that I was looking for him to come back and say, Peter, sorry, but that was my job to forgive him. The rest, that I knew God would take care of it. And I felt like I lost 100 pounds for letting that go because I realized just the anger I had had towards my dad wasn't good in any shape form. And that helped me to truly see God's grace and mercy and forgiveness, uh, that we all need forgiveness, uh, especially me. Well, I love the description that you looked like a believer, but you actually were not one. It wasn't enough to just go through the steps of serving others and extending kindness and compassion. You didn't know Jesus personally, and that made all the difference in terms of how you 
uh, dealt with your past and how you specifically dealt with the mistreatment that you had endured at the hands of your father. Yes, absolutely. It helped me see my own sin, and that really helped me to know, to know, to get to know Christ as my Lord and Savior. You had, as you mentioned a few moments ago, imagined that you could help your siblings, that you could help your extended family, but you hadn't yet seen yourself as a world changer. How did that transition from someone who was needy to helping family members to reaching out and helping perfect strangers in various countries around the world? Well, I think people, you know, I would, I would help people, but they would go back and tell the story like, hey, we need this guy and, he, you know, we need to give him a scholarship to go study. Things I didn't really see. For me, I was doing what I love to do, but I didn't realize that I was touching lives. And that's how he took it seriously. Like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe God rescuing me, God protecting me and in the hands of this stranger to change my life, that he had a purpose for me to do more for others. So uh, as soon as I finished you know, university, I really wanted to work for charities that were really helping the most vulnerable. So I worked for Compassion International, and that's why I worked in, you know, for Red Cross and, and for World Vision as well, because I, I knew in that, in that way I could use my own journey to really share and tell how kindness of one stranger can change an entire family. Well, and you certainly have done that in big ways, and I'm sure that 10-year-old boy could not have imagined what you ended up doing in these international relief organizations, reaching out to hundreds, if not thousands, of children in desperate need of help. That is all part of your professional world, but you decided to make it a bit more personal as well. You have uh, served as a foster parent and an adopted parent. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey? Yes. Yeah, so when I came to the United States, I came as a student. But my first day in the United States, I saw how much food was thrown away. And I think I really struggled with my faith, seeing how much food was thrown I said, God, do you, do you love us the same way that others can mm-hmm. die for the lack of beans and others can just throw away food like it's nothing? You know, and as I, I looked through that, I really also began to really realize that I was I'd been given so much. You know, Luke 12, 48, it said, to whom much is given, much is required. But I knew I'd been rescued. I'd been given a home. I've been given education. I've traveled over the world. And I really, this was a time for me to say, you know what? I'm going to help. So I traveled all over the world, but I had never seen a black person who was adapting or who was uh, adapting any place like Uganda, Ethiopia, or China. They were all white people or they were married. And I was single, so I thought, Maybe I don't qualify. So in some way, when we don't see representation, we, we, we assume or we believe the lie. So for me, I got to know about false care system. And I thought, there's no way they can allow me to be a foster parent, but at least I can go in and mentor. So I walked in and I asked the social worker, hey, is there a way I could mentor teenagers? And you know, she looked at me and she said, have you ever thought of being a foster dad? I was like, I don't think I qualify. I'm single. She said, no, you can't be. I mean, that day I signed up and I started to be licensed the next day, you know, and four months later I had my first placement. <laughs> and it was mm-hmm. the greatest decision, I can say, because it's really helped me to, to give back. You know, I went through the worst traumas you could go, you could imagine. And our kids in the false care have gone through the same. And I knew, I knew I can be of help. I knew, I understand, I understood their world. I understood where they came from, that I knew I could impact their lives. And so since then, I've had 27, 28. I've adopted one, and I'm in the process of adopting the other three uh, that are with me. So it's truly been a joy, an amazing journey for sure. Oh, absolutely. 
What's one thing you'd like your readers to know uh, after reading this book about your journey, God's faithfulness, and the value and purpose of a life that might have been simply discarded? Yes. So I wrote this book for friends and for those who go through difficult times, you know, and for my kids as well, that to use our past as a way to do better for ourselves. Like our past, yes, we can't change and we, we, we write our past, but we can use it to truly help us go as a foundation to see how far we can go. And that's what I did. I wanted my kids, my kids know me as Papa and they think I'm the coolest dad, <laughs> but I wanted them to see, I wanted them to see like, yeah, the coolest dad you think actually he had to jump a lot of hooks and jumps uh, to get where he is. But if he can pass, if he can, if he can use his past to do good, you can do as well. And I think I wanted the readers to feel the same. You know, you've gone through the bad marriage to not let that ruin for the rest of your life. You know, you've had a bad boss to say, no, that should not ruin for the rest of your job or, you know, difficult in, in, in anything that we want to do, to, to see that as a positive way in how God will use us for any past, good or bad, to truly bless us so we can bless others. And that's what I'm doing, you know, really using my past to change the lives of those around me. You know, the bio parents who think sometimes that they're they're losing their children. And how can I come alongside and say, hey, I'm going to have your baby, but I'm going to watch you walk the journey so you can have them back, that I'm a resource to them. Not be a judge or throw stone at them, but to see them as any of us can be a bad parent. Any of us can fail, but I want them to have their kids back. And if I can do that for them, I've given the greatest thing to have them their kids back. Uh, because I noticed that my mother, you know, anyone who passes on the street will say, wow, mother would let their kids be in the streets. But they didn't know what my mother went through. And I want to do the same for our bio parents, for our foster kids. Yes, they've messed up, but we can come alongside and encourage them and be a resource so they can have their kids back. And those who have nowhere to go, I would love to be their dad, you know, uh, and help and inspire others to truly use what we've been given to help those in need. Well, the book is uh, wonderfully written, uh, wonderfully inspiring and challenging. And I thank you so much uh, for the book and for your taking time to join us here today. Well, thank you for letting us be seen had unknown. Thank you. Thank you. Once again, the book is titled Now I Am Known, How a Street Kid Turned Foster Dad Found Acceptance and True Worth, Peter Mudabazi. You can find the book at nowiamknown.com or through the usual outlets. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a federal judge ruled last week, late last week, that the Food and Drug Administration's approval of the at-home abortion pill over two decades ago was improper and didn't consider all the pill's risks to patients. And he also did what many in his profession have failed to do up to this point. He recognized the humanity of the child in the womb. And the decision is, uh, if it's upheld, the abortion drug that's responsible for over half of all abortions in the United States could ultimately be pulled off the shelves. Now, how likely is it? Well, pretty unlikely, but a decision will have to be made. On Good Friday, in Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine versus U.S. Food and Drug Administration, U.S. District Court Judge Matthew um, Kaslermark, he delivered the good news that the pro-life movement was hoping for. It was a 67-page opinion, and he determined that the FDA had exceeded its authority 
and issuing both a fast-track approval of the abortion pill, mifepristone, and in later loosening restrictions designed to ensure its safety and its um, uh, safe use. He temporarily suspended the FDA's approval, but allowed the administration seven days to seek review from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Well, the judge's ruling is the most significant abortion-related ruling since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last June in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. And by returning the authority to legislate on abortion to the people and their elected representatives, the Supreme Court in Dobbs nearly guaranteed future litigation on the issue. And as at-home medication, abortion pill abortions, now account for a full 50 percent, I've heard as, as much as 60 percent of abortions in the U.S., even the temporary suspension of the FDA's decades-old approval will impact the lives of both women and the unborn children For the better. Well, the court's opinion began by identifying the precise issue many progressive analysts claim stood in the way of the suit's success. If the FDA approval of Mifepristone 20 years ago, why bring a suit now? Well, the judge parsed no words in pointing the finger at the government uh, for the delay, saying, simply put, FDA stonewalled judicial review until now. Before plaintiffs filed this case, FDA ignored their petitions for over 16 years, even though the law requires an agency respond within 180 days of receipt of the petition. But FDA waited 4,971 days to adjudicate plaintiffs' first petition and 994 days to adjudicate the second. Had FDA responded to plaintiffs' petitions within the 360-day total days allotted, this case would have been in federal court decades earlier. Instead, FDA postponed and procrastinated for nearly 6,000 days. Well, among other defenses, the FDA had uh, claimed that the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, a coalition of medical professionals, lacked standing and the suit should be dismissed. Standing requires proof of an actual injury on a plaintiff caused by the defendant that can be rectified by a court. Well, this uh, this federal judge determined that the alliance's members had standing because they alleged adverse events from chemical abortion drugs were overwhelming the medical system and putting enormous pressure and stress on them as they treat emergencies and complications arising from the use of the drug mifepristone. Well, the court also determined that because of the FDA's failure to require reporting of all adverse events, individual patients suffered associated with their use of mifepristone. The plaintiffs were unable to educate and inform their member physicians, their patients and the public of the dangers of chemical abortion drugs. Well, that required the uh, diversion of valuable resources away from the alliance's mission of advocacy and education and toward making up for the FDA's failure to honestly report on the dangers of the abortion pill. And again, it is expected that ultimately the Supreme Court will have the final say on this drug induced abortion drug. Well, the secular and cynical find it difficult to believe not only that God governs the affairs of men, as Benjamin Franklin said, but that he would visit a small town where there were few traffic lights and a decent restaurant is several miles away. The reference by Cal Thomas to the outpouring. He writes that something happened here in Asbury University. Kevin Brown, the president, is reluctant to use the word revival to describe what began early last month and lasted for several weeks. He prefers outpouring to describe the days of prayer, repentance, and singing that drew as many as 50,000 people to the small campus from miles away and other countries, along with international attention from a media that are normally indifferent to spiritual things unless they involve scandalous behavior. 
Professors who have been at the school for years and read about previous spiritual experiences at this campus and in other places told me they had never seen anything like it. Theological explanations aside, perhaps this outpouring can be partially explained by a recent NBC News poll that found 71 percent of those surveyed believe the country is headed in the wrong direction. Little seems to be working. We have a record national debt. Confidence in our political leadership is low. America's enemies seem ready to take advantage of what they perceive as weakness and indecisiveness in our president. Chinese President Xi Jinping has said that he believes America is in decline. Evidence for that can be found in numerous places. March Madness could describe every month in America and not just one related to college basketball. We appear to be heading toward a national suicide. Spiritual awakenings, as they are sometimes called, are nothing new. The Great Awakening of the mid-18th century began with the preaching of Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God at his Northampton, Massachusetts church. Patrick Morley, writing for the publication Church Leader, described what is common to all such awakenings. People sense a presence of God powerfully. Conviction, despair, contrition, repentance, and prayer come easily. People thirst for God's word. Many authentic conversions occur, and backsliders are renewed. A second great awakening occurred between 1800 and 1840 under the preaching of James McCready and Charles Finney. Evangelical church memberships grew from 350,000 to 3 million. The revival of 1857 was the greatest of them all. An estimated 1 million people were added to the church rolls. Church historian J. Edwin Orr has written that 10,000 people a week were converted in New York City alone. Writes Orr, Trinity Episcopal Church in Chicago had 121 members in 1857, 1,400 in 1860. That was typical of the churches. More than a million people were converted to God in one year out of a population of 30 million. What astounded many was the social impact as to pave the way for the abolitionist movement that eventually ended slavery and created missionary societies that built hospitals and performed other good works around the world. We've we've tried everything else in America, from politics to government to spend money. Nothing seems to be working as effectively as that which came before from what Orr described as a concert of prayer. Is that what happened at Asbury University? Time will tell in the results. Meanwhile, what C.S. Lewis said might be helpful in leading us sometimes uh, other than placing too much faith in human institutions. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy— The only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. The Asbury students appear to be on to something. Interestingly, again, I think the connection between the abolitionist movement and a revival in the United States is not lost on many who recognize the tremendous power of God to transform not just individuals but whole societies when they turn to him for an outpouring. I want to thank James Blend and uh, for, in, for let's see, what did he do? He produced today's program. Dave King engineered today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.